If you didn't hear the announcement earlier, before worship started, the Sudokans had their baby boy, Shepherd Paul Sudokan, this morning at 6.22 after almost 24 hours of labor. And we rejoice. He is healthy, 8 pounds, 5 ounces, and the family's doing well. You know, when I was in the Army, we handled confidential documents all the time. And partly because of that, and because it's a practice of the government printing office, the GPO, that when they need to format something to come out with the right number of pages, especially in confidential documents, because at the top of each confidential document it has marked confidential, or secret, or top secret, they would put on the blank page in bold letters, written in black, this page intentionally left blank. Think about that for a moment. What is that? Well, it's not blank. It's a paradox, isn't it? It reminds me of um, driving down an English lane one day, saw a big red sign by the side of the road, and it said, this sign, not in use. A few years ago in the city of Birmingham, not Birmingham, but Birmingham, England, um, and they still do it, I believe, there. The, all the buses that ran clockwise were in red. They were painted red. Some of you heard this story before. And all of the buses that ran counterclockwise were green. Well, the problem is all the buses came in one color, and they had to be repainted. And so the Green buses had to be repainted red, but they didn't have any red paint. So you know what they did? For the green buses that needed to be painted red so people would know the right direction to get on, there was a big sign on the side of the green bus that said, this is a, what, red bus. <laughs> See, these are the funny kind of paradoxes that we live with all the time. You know, uh, before I went to the eye doctor earlier this spring, I was down to one pair of glasses. And, of course, when the screw fell out, I had to take that tiny little screw with that tiny little screwdriver and put it in that tiny little hole without what? Without a pair of glasses. You see, we live with those paradoxes all the time. It's sort of like uh, you seminary students as you leave here who maybe came from a secular job and have not been on staff anywhere, and you're going to go find a worship leader's position or a pastor's position or whatever, you will then fill out a resume. And on that resume, what they want to know is your experience doing what you're going to be hired to do, and you don't have any what? Experience doing that. It's the, it's the standard paradox that all folks going into a new field experience, you know. It's sort of like... Why do we drive on parkways, but we park on driveways? So you get the idea, paradoxes. Well, this morning's message isn't so much about paradox, except for this. Postmodernity is bound with one huge paradox. You know, postmodernists say that there is no such thing as universal truth, or if there is, we can't know what that universal truth is. But they contradict themselves when you ask them what is probably the greatest moral statement of all time by which almost everyone lives, and without question, almost always they will say what? 
the golden rule. And yet they will say, well, there's no such thing as universal truth. But it is. Even atheists will say that the golden rule is applicable and necessary for an orderly society. What they will say is it doesn't have any religious base in it. You don't have to be a Christian or even religious to believe in the golden rule. And there is truth to that. You don't have to be a Christian or even a religious person to practice the golden rule. But its roots are deeply steeped in religious tradition. You go back to the 7th century BC, it became one of the rubrics of all Islamic culture. And before that, in the 1st century AD, Stoics like Seneca and Jews like Hillel the rabbi and uh, Philo in Alexandria taught the golden rule in one form or another. You go back even beyond that to the 5th and 6th centuries BC. In India, the sacred documents of Hinduism began to include this in their writings. And also in Greece, Thales and Herodotus, and then later Plato and Aristotle and the rest. You see, it has been embedded in religious and philosophic tradition and a major part of every culture going back even beyond that to China with Buddhism in the 6th and 7th century and Confucianism before that. Zoroastrianism in the 11th century BC. You see what we're doing. We're going further and further and further back, almost to the dawn of time. Where do we find the earliest evidence, documented evidence, of the golden rule being an inherent part of a culture, of a society, to govern its moral behavior or to forbid its immoral behavior? Where do we find it? Well, you know where it is. 14th century, 13th century B.C. in the Torah, in the word that God gave Moses. For we see in Leviticus, the 19th chapter, Verse 18, you know the latter part of that verse, I'm sure. Let me read it in its entirety. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear grudge against your kinsfolk. Love your what? Neighbor as what? Yourself. For I am the Lord. There it is. There's the basis for the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, of course, the biblical text that we're looking at today is the new covenant expression of that. When Jesus said in Matthew, the seventh chapter, I'm not going to have you stand because by the time you stand up, you're going to be sitting down. Okay. One verse today, but don't mistake, just one verse doesn't mean it's, a, it's necessarily a shorter message. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want, that you want them to treat you. For this is the what? It is the law and the prophets. There's a parallel passage in, in Luke's gospel, Luke the sixth chapter. And it simply says this, treat others the same way that you want them to treat you. And you see a couple of differences in those two verses. Uh, Luke's passage we read just before we started worship today. It's embedded in a series of commands that Jesus gives from the Sermon on the Mount about loving your enemy and praying for them, and, and being fair to those that even persecute you. But there are a couple of differences between these two verses. One, Matthew says, it begins by, what, in everything. And Luke doesn't. In everything, and it points back to something that's very important. And then Matthew's passage also links the golden rule 
to the law and the prophets. Not that Luke didn't agree with that, but explicitly in Matthew, those are two very important points. So what we do is we look at the context today. Of course, Matthew, the seventh chapter is near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first of five great discourses in the book of Matthew. And after he has described who kingdom people are in the Beatitudes, and then he has defined what kingdom people do, what they're responsible for, and that is to be salt and to be light, then he makes this very profound statement. He says, don't say that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to do what? I have come to fulfill them. And we know he did this in a number of ways. We know he fulfilled them by keeping all of the law. The only person that ever lived that was completely obedient to God. You see, he fulfilled it in that way. He fulfilled it at the end of his earthly life by fulfilling the sacrificial requirement for the payment of sin. And he fulfilled that part of the law and was resurrected. In the Sermon on the Mount, what he does is he teaches fulfillment. This is about teaching fulfilled righteousness. When righteousness is full, when righteousness overflows, what does it look like? And he explains this in what we call typically the kingdom ethic that follows. So in that passage from verse 17 down to 20, he's talking about the law and the prophets, and that they will not pass away, any one of them, not even the slightest jot or tittle, until everything is fulfilled. And then he, go, he starts with verse number 21, and he explains what fulfilled righteousness is. It, it's, it's two things, at least the way I see it. From verse 21 to the end of chapter 5 and verse 48, he talks about the first section of this, and it's fulfilled in the way that we walk before people. Do we treat them mercifully? Do we treat them justly? This has to do with human relationships. And then he shifts gears at the beginning of chapter 6 and runs all the way through chapter 7, verse number 12, and he talks about how do we fulfill righteousness in the sight of God? How do we walk humbly in the sight of God? You know, this really is this block of material from, from Matthew 5, 21 to 7, 12, this kingdom ethic really is a commentary on a couple of great passages, a couple of great things. One, it is, a, it is a commentary on the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's Matthew 6 and the beginning of 7. And of course, you will love your neighbor as yourself which we read from Leviticus 18. And of course, that's the earlier passage, section 1. And it's also a commentary on that great passage that we often quote when we talk about how do we worship God and serve Him properly. And you probably can guess what I'm talking about. Micah, the sixth chapter, verse number 8. He doesn't want countless bloody sacrifices. He wants what? He wants us to love mercy to do justice, and to walk humbly in the sight of God. Well, that is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is found at the end of that first section, just before the beginning of the second section. At the end of the first section where he talks about how we walk responsibly before others in mercy and justice, in verse number 48, take a look at it if you've got your scripture. Open it up to Matthew 5, 48. What does it say? He gives us a command. He said, therefore, and we will deal with this later in our imperatives from Jesus. Therefore, you are to be what? Perfect. Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we've talked about that before. 
I think we understand that that means that we are to be and to become everything that God created humans to be, and specifically whom he created you to be. He has a purpose for you to fulfill. So become all that God created you to be in his image. There's a parallel verse in, verse, in, in chapter 6 of Luke, not long after the, the golden rule. It says it a little bit differently. It says, be merciful like your heavenly Father is merciful. And so this tells us how to do Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do you do that? Well, you love as he does. You have loving kindness and mercy for others as he does. You follow his example in loving others, and then you move toward being the perfect person that God has called you to be. So why do we have the golden rule? Why is it found then in chapter 7, verse 12, at the end of this section about how to walk humbly before God? It seems to have nothing to do with walking humbly before God. It says to do what? Treat others, that is people. The word there is anthropos. Sometimes you see it as others, sometimes as people. Generically, treat folks as you would have them treat you. Why is it there? Well, I think it's very important. As he goes into this summary then, and he gives basically, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives some warnings about people that don't rightly follow him. And then he basically gives an invitation at the end of that sermon. Are you going to come and plant yourself on solid ground, or are you going to try to exist on sandy soil? But before he does that, at the beginning of this summary, before he gives the invitation, he sums up then the law and the prophets at the end of the section where he says, how do you talk, walk humbly before God? Because of this, to walk humbly before God requires that we do what? That we walk, walk rightly before humans. So it's kind of a summarization of the whole kingdom ethic. The golden rule summarizes the kingdom ethic. In everything, he says, in everything, therefore, treat people as you would have them treat you. In everything. And then he says, for you see, this is the law and the prophets. This everything is what he has just described from chapter 5, 21 to 7, 12. All those things. So when he says everything, he's looking back at all of that, but specifically How do you walk before men? And then he says it sums up the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets such as Micah. How do you love mercy and do justice? And how do you walk humbly before God? Very simply, you treat others as you would have them treat you. So what's the meaning of this? I think it's pretty simple. I think we would all agree pretty much to a simple definition, although it has been picked apart and debated and criticized from a philosophic standpoint by many people from different angles. I think it means this. With loving kindness, with mercy, we are to live in a just way. Do justice doesn't mean being judgmental because Jesus said, don't be judgmental against others. It means to be just, to act justly and to treat people with respect. And I think it means this too. Our standard then, as we think about that, okay, I'm going to treat you the way I want you to treat me. I I think what is meant there is a little more subtle. It's not just the way I feel I want to be treated, but it's the way that I should be treated. 
For you see, God has standards about the way we are to be treated and how we're to treat each other. This is not just a subjective, emotional thing, how I think I want to be treated, but how God says that we should. And the reasons for this is, why do we have the golden rule? Well, it's the moral thing to do. It's the godly thing to do. You see, it's the way God behaves. This is the way God behaves. He treats us the way He wants us to treat Him. It also is because everyone that has ever drawn breath on the face of this globe. For that baby that was born this morning. For Shepherd Paul Sudokin. And for the person that we honor, Tamara, who has passed on. Jimmy Johnson. Opposite ends of the spectrum in age. Every one of them deserves what? Respect. Why? Because each of us, each of you, is created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. We do it also because Jesus commands it. And we're his disciples, and disciples of the rabbi, disciples of the master, do what the master commands. We also do it because it builds the kingdom. The kingdom ethic builds the kingdom. It links us together. And as we share our faith with others, and they come to know the Lord, and we disciple them, then we teach them to do what? What does it say in the Great Commission? Baptizing them and teaching them to do what? All things whatsoever I have commanded you. And he has said, do this. So these are the reasons that we do it, but they're criticisms against it. Immanuel Kant, at the beginning of the 19th century, said that the golden rule is too subjective. You see, it leads to absurd conclusions and applications. For example, a guilty man standing before a judge might say to the judge, well, treat me the way that you want to be treated. Well, don't sentence me to death because you surely would not want to die. I mean, it it leads to kind of obviously absurd conclusions. He would say what we need to do is follow the categorical imperative. The categorical imperative is such that each person out there, you and you and I, Every individual, then, really has an intuitive understanding of what is universally true. Our conscience tells us what everyone knows to be universally true. (laughs) Well, you see, that certainly uh, smacks in the face of post-modernity. The problem with that is the, the words of Jesus here are not subjective. The golden rule is not subjective at all. God has given objective standards by which we should judge our behavior. Jesus' sermon has already explained how to fulfill righteousness, and he's been very explicit with his examples. This isn't just an amorphous, I think, that this is universal truth. You stop and think about what Kant said. In fact, his statement is a statement of subjectivity. Each person should determine what everyone knows to be universally true. We cannot do that. We cannot do that on our own. We cannot know what universal absolute truth is. And I would agree with the postmodernists up to this point. I cannot know what objective truth is. There is objective truth. But I cannot know what that objective absolute universal truth is unless I know what the Word of God says. You see, that's the rubric. That's the heading. Under that, everything falls. So in order to know that truth... It's not just my subjective idea, it's what God tells me. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, of course, atheist, said that the golden rule promotes weakness. It promotes a slave morality, and it superimposes a slave morality over that which we should strive for, and that is a a master morality. You know what he said. 
his ubermensch, his superman. He said, you see the perfect society, perfect humanity is about gaining domination, gaming, gaming domination of the, street, of the strong over the weak. The problem with this approach and its attack on the golden rule is that God doesn't work through strength. God works through weakness, and we know that. Paul tells this to the Corinthians on two occasions. In his first letter, you know what he said at the end of chapter 1, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then in the second letter, he says, when he is afflicted, God told him, my what is sufficient. My what is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you because you see weakness then is made perfect. In weakness, we become perfect. God works through weakness, not through overt strength and power. Sigmund Freud, the psychologist, said that the golden rule is impractical. It's impractical because it's about love, but you see, we operate at lower levels of selfish love. We operate at the level of erotic love. We operate at the level of brotherly love and family love. Those are lower levels of love. What this requires is a higher kind of selfless love, not a selfish love. And he said, we cannot love that way. Nobody can love selflessly like that. It's impossible. The problem with that is the Bible says we can. The Bible says that we can love as God loves. We can love as God loves. And we move toward that perfection where more and more we do love mercifully like he does. There's imperfection there because we're not God. But we can, on occasions, love like God loves if we know God. You see, that's the key. And we're commanded to do so. Be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful is another way of saying be a loving, kind person. Be a loving person as he is. First John, the fourth chapter, puts it a little differently. Beloved, and the word, of course, is agape or agapao, agape love, agapao to love. And in that, in just two verses, he uses those words five times. Listen to it. Beloved, let us love, agapao, one another. For love, agape, is from God. And everyone who loves agapao is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love agapao does not know God, for God is love, agape. John's saying we need to love like God. And he empowers us and enables us to do so, so we dispense with Freud. <laughs> Paul Ricoeur, the postmodern philosopher, French philosopher of the 20 and 21st century, says we can, the golden rule is really a paradox. You see, there's a new commandment, he said, and it's not the new commandment that we know that is found in John's gospel. He said the new commandment is, and it comes from the Sermon on the Mount, is that we are to love superabundantly, that we are even to love our enemies. And you see, that is a unilateral action aimed at somebody that is not reciprocal. He said, but you see, the golden rule reciprocates. It is reciprocal. It's bilateral. And you cannot do both of those things at the same time. It is a paradox. The response that I would give to that is, Jesus commanded us, like Ricoeur says. That's where it comes from. He commands us to love our enemies, but not for reciprocation, regardless of what our enemies think. You see, this is part of the kingdom ethic itself. It's contained then in everything that came before. The golden rule contains all of that. The golden rule contains the command to do what? To love our enemies. You see, it is possible for us to love our enemies and to love with selfless love 
according to the golden rule, because the golden rule includes it, and they're mutually dependent. Let me make some observations about the golden rule then. First of all, I think it demonstrates, as I've already said, our love for God. If we're going to love God, we follow the golden rule. Why is this? We'll follow the biblical logic here. How do we show our love for God? First John tells us this. We show our love for God this way. By what? By obeying the commandments. And they're not hard to follow, he says. Commandments are simple. So we obey God by following the commandments. Now, what did Jesus do? Follow me here just a second. Jesus then tied the two great commandments together, didn't he? He said there are two great commandments. So the first commandment, he said, is to love the Lord your God. And the second is likened to that, love your neighbors yourself. So, so he ties those commandments together, those two great commandments. And the golden rule then does what? It combines those. Everything that came before then is subsumed under the golden rule. It is the law and the prophets. So if we're going to obey the law and the prophets, if we're going to do all of this together, if we're going to obey the commandments and show that we love God, therefore we love as God does. We treat people right and we do justly and we love them as God does. So we go back to Luke the sixth chapter, be merciful as your father in heaven is merciful. So there's a logic behind this. You see, we demonstrate our love for God by loving others. It's commanded. The second observation, I think, would be this. The golden rule follows God's ordered path, His ordered way. It's not based on subjective feelings, friends. You know, when it says, treat others as you would have them treat you, we think, well, it's the way that I want to be treated. The problem with that is, friends, we don't really even know how we should be treated. We live in a broken world, and we have false expectations. We really don't know until we read the Word of God how we should be treated. I think this really means this. Treat others as you know that you should be treated is really the meaning of it. Yeah, otherwise, you know, if, if it's completely subjective, it does lead to absurd or paradoxical applications. What about the self-destructive person? that is mentally off, self-destructive, wants to destroy himself or herself. The logical conclusion of this, it could lead to mass shootings, and it does. Hmm. I've treated them the way I want to be treated. <laughs> That's absurd. For the narcissists, which are pretty rare in our society today, for people that are self-focused and cannot take the, pick their, their face away from the selfie on their phone, I know that's pretty rare. In a self-focused society today, folks, it's impossible to do. Stop and think about it. It's counterintuitive. I'm the center of the universe, and I'm going to treat you that way. You can't do that. If I'm the center of the universe, I don't treat you like you're the center of the universe. You see, it's oil and water. They don't mix. So it's not subjective like that. It's not just a feeling. No, Jesus gave us examples. He said, now I'm going to show you how the law and the prophets are fulfilled. This is the way they're fulfilled when you walk before men. Do not treat others with anger. It's like murder. Be reconciled to your brother. Don't give an, a gift at the altar if you know your brother has something against you. Go immediately and be reconciled. You see, he gave definitive standards. Make friends of your opponent on the way. Don't go to court with them if you don't have to. Don't lust after others. That's what the one about adultery is about and, and, uh, and also divorce. 
Treat your partners with respect. Don't dismiss them frivolously in serial divorce. Don't seek vengeance even when you have been insulted highly. Be direct. Be clear. Be transparent in what you say. Don't be evasive and misleading. Go the extra mile even if it hurts. Give to those in need and love your enemy as yourself. Jesus gave very explicit examples of how we do this. It's not subjective. And it's more than empathy and respect. Some would say, well, the golden rule is all about getting in the other person's shoes and walking around and, and understanding how the other person feels. And I think that that's helpful, folks. But there's a limit to that. And you see, the way we behave isn't based on our perception of what they perceive themselves to be. They're absolute standards. It's, it's based on, on what we have just said the standards that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, though we should respect some people because they're created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, some of those people have treated us with great disrespect. And because of that, we're offended and we react against it. There's some people that we just don't like for whatever reason. And so if it's a matter of feelings, folks, we can't do it in our own power. What it takes is the agape love of God. And God then puts it in our heart, and we find ourselves loving people that we maybe previously found unimaginable to love. In fact, we find that we love people that are quite unlovable because they need the love of God. This is not about what I think is right, what I feel is right, but it's what God commands is right for putting the love of God in my heart. A third observation is it doesn't follow the broad way. The, the golden rule doesn't follow the easy way. You see, most folks will say, when you look it up on Wikipedia or wherever it is, the golden rule will say, well, this is a reciprocal thing. <laughs> you know, I treat you this way because I want you to treat me that way. With the what? With the expectation that you will treat me that way. But the golden rule, Jesus never said that. He never said, treat others the way you want them to treat you because you know they're going to treat you that way. He never had that proviso at the end. No, this is based solely on the selfless love of God. It's not based on power. It's not based on getting riches. It's not based on the rule of gold. It is a golden rule. Instead, you see, what happens is when we love people like that, sometimes they do not pay back kind for kind. It takes the true love of God to do that without any expectation of return. First John says this, we know love by this, how? That he loved us so much that he laid down his life for us. You see, he laid down his life for us when we could not lay down our life for him. But we ought to lay down our life for the brothers, he says. You see, Jesus' call to discipleship is selfless. Remember what he says in Luke 9. If you're going to come with me, do what? First die to self, and then do what? Take up your cross and follow me. It is selfless. So when we love others using the golden rule, it is selfless without expectation. It is not reciprocal. In fact, Jesus warns us that the opposite will, will occur. In Matthew, the 10th chapter, remember what he said as he sent the, sent the disciples out. He's already preached the golden rule in chapter 7. This is chapter 10 later, and he sends them out, and he warns them, you're going, to go, you're going to go do golden rule business, and you know what's going to happen? I send you out amongst wolves. 
They're going to take you into the court and try you. You're going to be beaten in the synagogues. Brother will rise against brother to death, and children will rebel against their parents, and people will hate you because of me. Rosa Parks. Remember Rosa Parks? (laughs) She is a lady in Montgomery that would not sit in the back of the bus. Right? Part of the civil rights movement of the 60s. A hero of the civil rights movement. What did she say about the golden rule? I think this is very pertinent, especially coming from her. Nothing in the golden rule says others will treat us as we have treated them. There's no promise. It only says that we must treat others in a way that, they want to be, that we want to be treated. You see, the world opposes the love of Christ. The world hates the love of Christ. The world does not understand the agape love of God. And Jesus and John both warn us about this. Jesus says, you know, if the world hates you, you need to remember this. It did what first? It hated me first. And first John says, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, when the world hates you. It leads to ridicule when we practice the golden rule. We've heard it. It's too subjective. It's weak. It's impractical. It's paradoxical. It leads to results that are sometimes unseemly and harsh to persecution. First Peter tells the little children in his first, in, in his first epistle, Peter says, don't be surprised when you encounter fiery ordeals, when you suffer for Christ, and when you revile for the name of Christ. Just make sure of this. When you are, make sure that you are suffering for God's glory and you're not suffering because you have been disobedient. Paul tells Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, all who desire to follow the golden rule, all who desire to love with the agape love of God will be persecuted. Another observation. The golden rule transforms society, and we've seen it. We've seen it throughout the ages, countless examples of the gospel bringing social reform and change to society. This happens when Christians have been willing to suffer for him and stand for a godly cause. And they demonstrate Christ's love in the face of all opposition to overturn class norms that are immoral. And the Scripture tells us the the Word of Christ, the Word of God then, and I know this is speaking in a spiritual sense, but it has practical political applications. It says that the Word of God does what? It disarms rulers and authorities. It's disarming. Martin Luther King, when he spoke in Detroit in 1961 at the Lenten service to the Detroit Council of Churches, listen to what he says about the power of love. And he's talking about the love of God here. And so put us in jail, (laughs) and we will go in with humble smiles on our faces, still loving you, bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we will still love you. Be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. But not only will we win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your hearts and to your consciences that we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. This seems to me to be the only answer and the only way to make our nation a new nation. And our world, a new world, where you see love. And he's talking about agape love. Love is the absolute power. It transforms societies. A couple of other observations. The golden rule restores confidence in the image of God. 
In our fallen world, friends, unredeemed people, unredeemed people bear false images. They really do not understand who they were made to be. Some live shattered, abused, neglected, depressed, and doubt-filled lives with a total loss of hope on one end of the spectrum. This sounds almost bipolar here. (laughs) On the other end of the spectrum, others live with an inflated, narcissistic view of their self-importance and self-confidence, and they are both off the scale. They're not who God created us to be. He wants people to be aware that he does what? Sometime, friends, when you know somebody who's depressed, who's going through trouble in life, the best thing you can do is just look them straight in the eye and say what? I just want you to remember God loves you. He, he really loves you. And I love you and I care for you. Sometimes just that word of encouragement, it, what it does is it startles them. People don't talk that language anymore, you see. It startles them, and it brings them to an awareness that maybe there's some hope out there. You see, they're not aware of God's love. They're not aware of their genuine worth. They're not aware that they're created in the image of God, and they're not aware that He loves them. But when you begin to share that with them, it startles them, and it opens the door. It opens the door for them to discover a new reality. Or you see, this is illogical. It's illogical for us to love our enemies. It's illogical for us to forgive instead of seeking vengeance. It's illogical for us to give and give and give when we know that we're not going to get anything in return. But when people see us behaving that way, it opens the door to God's grace. It begins to remove the scales from their spiritual eyes. And they say, maybe there is a better reality. Maybe there is hope for me. Maybe I do have value. And then the door for God's grace is cracked open. And they begin to see with different eyes. It exposes them to God's grace. And it opens their heart to what I would call soul repair. The healing of the damaged psyche. I believe in Christian counseling. I believe in the folks that devote their lives to counseling people with troubled souls. And some secular counselors do a lot of good. But folks, finally, it's the person who counsels also with the grace of God so that they might see that it is not they who repair their souls, but it's the God who loves them and sent his son to die for them. And they come to discover that they are of inestimable value, that the Son of God died for them because they're made in the Father's image. Last observation. The golden rule shapes us in Christ's likeness. There's a parallel passage in the Pauline epistles. It's not exact. It's not the, they're not the exact, it's not the exact phraseology. But Paul in the letter to the Philippians basically then re kind of states the golden rule. Ephesians, the second chapter. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Folks, that is a Pauline golden rule. What he's saying there is, then, we can't do it by ourselves. We cannot obey the golden rule by ourselves. What it takes is we need to have a change of attitude. We need to have the mind of Christ. We need to have the attitude of Christ 
who while he knew it was not robbery to be equal with God, did what? He lived out the golden rule. He treated us better than we would ever want to be treated. He treated us better than we could have ever expected. If I want to be blessed here at church one afternoon, I know all I have to do is walk up to Mark Stieferson and say, how are you doing, Mark? And what will Mark say? I'm blessed. That's a blessing, you see. If I want to be reminded of the grace of God, I walk up to Clyde, and I say, Clyde, how are you doing today? And you know what he says almost always, what? Better than I deserve. Those two statements, folks, proclaim the gospel. We need to speak that way to people. We need to be bold in speaking the gospel in ways that open people's spiritual eyes and show that God loves them. You see, for what he did, he sent his only begotten son. And today, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, God sent his only begotten son to die for you and to die for your sin so that you might have the eternal gift of salvation if you accept him as Lord and Savior. You see, what he did for you was far more than you would ever be able to do for yourself. He not only lived the golden rule, he died it. He not only lived the golden rule and died it, but then his father, who loved him with incomparable love then, did for his son the golden rule. He did for him what he wanted for himself, and that was to raise his son to new life. You see, the golden rule really... I think encapsulates, I do. Some would disagree with this, but I think it encapsulates the gospel. If we love God, we treat others as we would, should be treated by them. If we love God, we follow Christ and we share that gift with others. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the rich gift of eternal salvation that you've given us through Jesus Christ, your Son. When we hear the, wor the world talk about the golden rule. It has many secular applications. But when your son preached it, it was a deeply spiritual truth that defines the kingdom ethic. And we thank you that you loved him so much that you raised him from the dead so that we might have eternal salvation to share with others. And I think, Lord, what you're calling us to do ultimately is this. We treat others with the gospel of Jesus Christ with a saving knowledge of the truth so they might be saved. Because we know that if we were lost and if we really knew what we needed, and if we were in a dark and dying world filled with sin and unredeemed and headed to hell, we would want somebody to share that with us. Father, we pray this morning if there's someone who does not know your son Jesus Christ that they will receive the gift of salvation through him. And then they will be compelled to go out and share the golden truth of the gospel with others. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.